So how's your running going? Is running is non-existent. Oh, Aaron, what happened? It's non-existent. I've decided I'm gonna be one of those before and after models. <laughs> I want to hear more about that. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to eat Hostess cupcakes and drink beer and wine for one more month. And then when our treadmill and bike get here, I'm going to be like one year of commitment. Okay. Okay. And, and 45 is going to be my, uh, my uh, magazine cover year. It's going to be your big reveal. Sure. <laughs> Bro, what led you to this thought process? Just, uh, you know, I'm going to keep putting it off, but I got to get get on it at some point. And I was like, oh, I'm you mean you're going to keep putting it on? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I'm putting it on until March 23rd when the treadmill and the bike get here. I mean, I'll do some stuff. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not purposely putting it on, but I'm not... Brennan or purposely biking. taking it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was not at all expecting that response. Yeah. Right. So I turn 44 next month, March 17th. It's going to be a transformational year. It's going to be a shout out to Obama for my 44. Oh, but Obama's Obama, a 44 friend. Right. But he's also mad healthy. I know. But that's what I'm saying for 44 my 44th year of living, I'm going to become as healthy as our 44th president. Okay, here's what you just did. did you made something so ridiculous sound profound. <laughs> that's what I'm here for, Rhonda. That's what you, you've learned that by now. That's what I'm here for. But until then... <laughs> I'm living like our 45th president. I did not want to say that. Yeah. Uh, but I will say you're listening to The Dot Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Stallworth. The Dot Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through Dap, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. I can barely keep a straight face. <laughs> We have conversations with Black men and other Black people from all walks of life and ask them about a familiar practice of Black culture. Dap. Who taught you? Was it the cool-ass uncle? When did you first see it? And as we emerge from the disastrous presidency into a new administration, as we emerge from a period of racial reckoning, and as we emerge from a global pandemic, because we will get through this, shout out to everyone who's been vaccinated we are asking, what does it mean to come back better? How can we use our radical imagination to envision and create the world we deserve? We're talking to Black folks who are doing the work. So for my news, I'm thinking about Texas as many of us are. Our minds are on Texas following last week's snowstorm and the tragedies that resulted from power outages, water scarcity, and food shortages. The New York Times reported that at least 58 people died, some from hypothermia, others from trying to stay warm in their homes, and still others from trying to access their life-saving devices like oxygen tanks or dialysis machines. I can't imagine what it feels like to be a family member who goes looking for your family, maybe in the garage or maybe you walk outside to find them because they just stepped out and to find that they have transitioned. That has to be a devastating experience. As the global pandemic and the quarantine have most recently exposed and other natural disasters in the histories remind us not everyone experienced the pain of the snowstorm equally. Black and brown people in low-income neighborhoods were especially vulnerable to this crisis. I want to reference a February 19 article in the Texas Tribune 
by Alex Ora and Juan Pablo Garnum that describe what is essentially environmental racism and injustice. And those are the two topics that we're talking about in our episode this week. So it offers a lot of insight and deeper understanding about both the situation that we're facing and the opportunities ahead of us. They spoke to Letitia Plummer, who is a city council member in Houston. And she says in this article, we are already poor and our communities are already devastated in many ways. We are always in a disadvantage. So when one incident happens, it makes us fall so much harder. The article continues to point out that neighborhoods with mostly black and Hispanic residents tend to have older homes that are less likely to withstand extreme weather. So it's even colder inside the house than maybe in other houses because these older homes have poor insulation. They quote Jill Ramirez, the CEO of the Latino Healthcare Forum. And she says, when you didn't invest in the whole community equally, then you're going to see the disparity when we get into situations like this. And these situations, the disparity that she's describing are preventable. But there is optimism and there are definitely folks who are doing the work to rebuild and to come back better. Here are two organizations that you can consider supporting. The Austin Area Urban League is collecting donations to support housing insecure communities. Casa Marianella supports displaced residents and people seeking asylum in the United States. Links to these organizations are in the show notes. That's my news for this week. In my news, not so long ago, and still hitting headlines, is the Flint, Michigan water crisis. This is one example of many across the U.S. that reflects the need for environmental justice advocates like our guest today, Taylor Morton from WEAC's New York branch. Flint, Michigan is a town of just under 100,000 folks. The city switched its water from metropolitan Detroit system to the Flint River in 2014, a move that led to contamination and an outbreak of illness and disease in the city. To date, the former Michigan governor and eight other public officials have been indicted for alleged crimes related to the Flint water contamination crisis. My big brother Jay hopped in our DAP project IG comments to reference iconic hip hop group, A Tribe Called Quest, and their track, The Space Program, from their final album, or should I say their last album. Jay's big brother knowledge saw the connection of the Tribe Called Quest lyrics to the role of spatial structural racism as we see these crises too often occurring in Black, Brown, and poor communities. One of the latest examples I've come across as it relates to environmental justice being the Indiana Housing Project built atop a lead smelting plant that turned refined copper and lead into batteries. This complex was built in 1972. High levels of lead were discovered in 1985, but the 1100 majority Black and Hispanic residents were not told that the space they called home was deemed uninhabitable until 2016. Plenty of time for 30% of the children in that region to exhibit elevated blood lead levels. Lead, by the way, damages the developing brain. In 2019, the Indiana complex was demolished. The EPA, HUD, the U.S. Department of Human Services, they currently have some 18,000 similar sites like the one in East Chicago, Indiana. Take a close listen to that track by a tribe called Quest. Check the full article that I'm referencing in the show notes. It's from the Washington Post. And play your part in environmental activism as often as you can. That's my news. A child of an educator and a wildlife biologist, Taylor Morton spent their childhood in the outdoors of South Carolina, where they fell in love with nature and watched their dad dap up the other few Black families on the trails. Taylor's passion evolved into a pursuit of justice as Director of Environmental Health and Education at WEACT for Environmental Justice, located in New York City. 
We talk with them about bears. There's some great stories about bears, climate change, and holding elected officials accountable. All right, so we're gonna jump right in and stay true to the roots of the DAP project and ask you, Taylor, what's your earliest memory of DAP? My earliest memory of DAP, definitely, uh, so my, my family does a lot of hunting and fishing and there, especially growing up, there weren't a lot of, of black folks out in the woods. Uh, so it was mostly us and there were a few other black families who, uh, who were out and about. Uh, and when my, my father saw them and the woods are passing on the trails, he, he definitely dapped it up with them uh, just as a, a gesture of, I see you in the woods. Um, like I see you, um, I see you out here uh, and in this sort of environment, especially in for rural South Carolina, uh, it's very, very specific sort of outdoor um, outdoor setting, but I think that meant a lot, um, especially in that space. Um, How old were you? Uh, probably like third and fourth grade. Okay, okay, yeah. eight, nine years old, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I think, so I identify as non-binary, which is a very specific sort of lens. So I, I think sometimes I get misgendered for being a black male and uh, so there's like an attempted dap there. And I think I am just kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, so um, that's always like a funny sort of, uh, a funny sort of experience as well. Do you have any uh, favorite hunting and fishing stories? Yeah, my, my favorite memory is fishing from the bank uh, mm-hmm. and just very terrified of both uh, worms and crickets. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, a worm's not going to do much to you, but a cricket will jump in your face. So that was terrifying to me as a child. Um, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. My dad's really, really good at it. So we always had a, a pretty good chance of, of catching fish and um, have a lot of a lot of like memories of like walking around the backyard and he's skinning fish and there's like fish scales and on the ground and and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, my brother is my brother's really an avid hunter. He killed his first deer like three or four years before I did. So uh, my first deer was very memorable uh, because he was not allowed to shoot in the stand uh, because he had. He's uh he's pretty good about he's pretty good about uh, uh killing deer and and making that happen. So uh, my dad was like, "It's your time to sit out. I think you gotcha. you've done enough. Don't worry about it." So, um, oh, you're, you're sparking some memories. I grew up in East Texas, and my, my uncle Ray specifically comes to mind, who who was from Mississippi, and my dad now lives in Alabama. So a lot of what you just said reminds me of my growing up years uh, in Texas and, and visiting family in the summers in Mississippi and Alabama. So if you're scared of crickets, maybe this next question will be really intense. Um, Have you ever come face to face with a bear? Yes, uh, my father is, my father was the black bear uh, biologist in South Carolina. Um, So his job was that when when bears uh, break into people's homes or bird feeders or whatever, um, he would tranquilize them and then drive them either deeper into the woods or take them to uh, like some like they have like bear orphanages like in different places in the south. So um, sometimes like he would we would I like remember this time clearly. I came home and uh, I saw this this big trailer outside and inside it was a sleeping bear it passed out in the back. And uh, I came in and he was fixing a sandwich. I was like, so what? what's happened like what's going on there's a bear in the driveway (laughs) i'm on the way to take it to the mountains but i stopped to fix me a sandwich and i was just like what's going on he's like i'm fixing a sandwich i'm on the way out to work you know i'll I'll, like catch you later but um we've held my brother and i we've held baby bears before and uh ones who've uh, who've uh their mothers have gotten hit by cars or anything like that and they're on their way on to another destination so i've always had very friendly bear encounters. Wow, I really did not expect that. <laughs> I thought you were gonna be like, 
Yes, I saw that there and <laughs> I booked it in the other direction. <laughs> and you're like, no, actually, my dad is a black bear biologist. Yeah, <laughs> we had very clear protocol on bear. He's like, yeah, like they're not out here to like hurt you or anything. Here's what you do. You know, don't stress about it. So mm-hmm. he gave us the protocol at a young age and then was like, all right, we're good. Everything well, there you have it, folks. When you see a bear, don't stress about it. That is Taylor's <laughs> official, <laughs> official guidance. <laughs> so you mentioned that you feel a strong connection between your family's roots as sharecroppers and before that as enslaved people. But um, you also mentioned that your dad and your family were were most often the only black people out in the woods. So I'm curious about how you interpret what that disconnect is. Why why aren't there more um, black people out on trails or are there, or maybe you could just speak to a perception that um, black people don't go outside, which is not entirely true, but maybe there is some truth to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I started off at Spelman, I was like, all right, so there aren't a lot of people who are outside engaging in the outdoors or doing conservation. And then I think that rolled and adapted to, there are people who are out there and they are just starting to be sort of recognized for the work that they're doing. So thinking about like Roomap and Outdoor Afro and the, the work mm-hmm. that she's been doing for a long time to get folks engaged. Uh, and there are a couple of other groups and, and really wonderful stewards of the environment um who've been doing that work so i think part of it is the part of it is the misconception that folks aren't being out going outside and and getting engaged um and that some of that is is linked to access and uh thinking about the cost of going to a park is a park near where i live what's the quality of, of the park that i have you know um whether or not you know it's just green space or there are trees, there are all these other things. There, there's um, brush that I can see wildlife and show my kids like, here's what these animals actually look like. Here's what they sound like. Um, so I, it feels like there's a, a combination of things sort of going on. And I think there's there's also, you know, another piece of, of being able to um, think back on, on the histories of, of folks who've been enslaved and that's not always a place where folks want to linger and that there is a, an, a, a certain awareness of what it means to be black outdoors. Um, and I think I've, I've been on even some social uh, social networks where I've, I've been engaging with some um, like hunters of color and uh, they've had some scary experiences where mm-hmm. uh, they've been outside and they've been intimidated for, for being in the woods. And, um, you know, when you're not close to um, like other people or places where folks can see you or lay eyes on you, it's a really different experience to pass someone who has mm-hmm. a Confederate flag on their truck or, um, you know, uh, we, we as a family spend a lot of time hunting in, um, in a certain town and, and we, hunting season overlapped with the election season and, um, you know, it was really interesting to see some of the messages that were put up around town. And, and uh, I think even for myself, right, having a, an, an, an increased awareness of I'm in this, this town is nearby where I'm hunting and um, yeah, I have a gun with me, right? Like that's, that's another mm-hmm. part of this. And, you know, we could talk for days about gun ownership and, and, and what it means to, uh, to be an active gun owner and use it for for hunting and fishing and um, some of the overlaps and concerns and and things to think about when you're when you're in the woods. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a little bit of everything. Folks are definitely there. There needs to be more access. And then there are these racialized layers of what it means to be um, what it means to be outside and internally how to process what it means to be outside. Yeah. Big shout out to Roomap and Outdoor Afro. They uh, reposted a picture of uh, my youngest, Rhonda, uh, oh, a while they? back. Oh, Marley. She, she, she was kayaking. Yeah, she was kayaking um, somewhere in Maryland on, on the Potomac. And uh, I posted it and, and, uh, and Outdoor Afro reposted it. And I would say both of your daughters really embody that outdoor Afro spirit. Like they're out there for sure. 
When was the moment that you realized that the environment deserved your your focus, your energy? Was there a switch in your mind that said, you know what, I could really study this as a passion for for the rest of my life, or I feel a real connection to the environment? I think it's always been really homegrown for me. Um, it's it's what my dad did as part of his job, but um, we he's always connected hunting and fishing to our family history as as sharecroppers and slaves, and that that this is a really important piece of us uh, putting food on the table and spending time together, and so it's something that we're gonna um, we're gonna do. And um, I think in doing that for so long, I think it it sort of clicked for me that um, this is an important part of my family legacy and it's something that I want to continue. Um, now the method of how that happened is sort of open. So I was like leaning into conservation and recreation um, until I got to, to Spelman College and everything that we did at Spelman was, uh, was through a specific lens. So they were like, all right, you're an environmental studies major but we're gonna specifically look at environmental justice. Um, and I think I had a lot of experiences that my classmates didn't have. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why, you know, I was one of a few who wanted to go outside, who was begging to get to a national park or uh, go camping and do all this kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I really put together that it wasn't that, you know, folks didn't wanna do it but that there were specific barriers for, uh, for giving access to those outdoor activities, that there was a gap between recreation and conservation and, um, and environmental justice. Uh, so I've pivoted in college towards, um, specifically like junior, senior year towards environmental justice. Um, and, and a lot of my background prior to then had been around environmental education specifically. Um, without those uh, justice and equity pieces or having less of those justice and equity pieces. Uh, and I think it also sort of understanding that it was a novelty to be a black person who um, had a father who was a wildlife biologist. I think my, my father was maybe one of three or four black biologists in the South Carolina Department of Nat Natural Resources at the time. Um, so I really shifted from, uh, from that conservation and recreation lens to looking at environmental justice. Um, and then I, I moved to New York and, and things sort of kicked off. Yeah. We, we definitely wanna hear more about the, uh, the justice side of, of what you do. But uh, when you moved to, to Atlanta from your home in South Carolina, did you feel like you eventually found your people after you uh, changed majors or when did you, or did you find your people at Spelman? Uh, Shout out to Spelman, by the way. You're the second Spelmanite we've had on the Bell Project. So, Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I found. I eventually found my people. It took some time. Um, I love Spelman College for everything, um, and I think junior senior year, I really like clicked together that. Um, oh, I need people who are also like wanting to be outside and engaged in this. And I have a group of college friends who are in the same major as I am. And uh, that seems like a really, it's a really special place to have um, like black women specifically talking about like conservation and recreation um, and like overlapping it and all of these other, you know, all the other conversations that we have. And um I picked up a lot of mentors, which was um, which was really good and also important. But I also had a key group of friends who some of them were of color and some of them were not. And the the Girl Scouts uh, it was a Girl Scout counselor for like three or four years um, in undergrad, and um, that was also really really crucial. So I feel like I there's an intersection of folks who carry some of those identities that I care about, some of those have identities that are different than mine um, and that the, the overlap and, on the way that they care about the outdoors has been really special and important to me. Um, and I think that's, that's still tr true to today um, that I'm still finding folks who, who do find a, a, a care importance around not only uh, the environment but environmental justice specifically. What did you ultimately uh, find yourself seeking to understand or 
find yourself understanding as a environmental studies major at Spelman? At Spelman, my mission was really to make sure that um, that kids who uh, came from a lower income background, kids of color, kids in cities had access to the outdoors. I wanted everyone to have the childhood that I had, which was uh, going outside and playing in the trees. And, um, you know, I, everyone's dad can't be a wildlife biologist, but, you know, um, I re really love like going and playing outside and, um, and that really rolled into something greater for us. And I think for me, I was like, oh, if people aren't having these experiences, I need to be one who's like opening the door so that more people can, um, can get in. And that really, I wouldn't say that's, that's, you know, my mission now is a lot different than it was before, but um, I think I'm, I'm really connecting what I had hoped to do in college around creating access for children to creating access to a, a lot of other folks and, and, um, lower income communities of color. Taylor, so for folks who aren't familiar with environmental racism and environmental justice, um, can you offer a definition of what that is? Yeah, um, so I, I like to frame it this way that environmental injustice or environmental racism, so we're thinking about discrimination uh, either based on race or where discrimination based on some other aspect could be class, could be uh, language or nationality, ethnicity, any of those things, but um, and and either the withholding of, of resources or uh, the degrading of an environment based off of of, of any of those things uh, that result in having a less healthy uh, place to live. Uh, that environmental racism and environmental justice is a cause, and the reaction is environmental justice. Environmental justice. We're thinking about two key things, and the first thing is meaningful involvement. And the second thing is fair treatment. Uh, and the two, two are very closely related. And meaningful involvement specifically is related to what we do at, at WEAC, especially in our policy department, as we, we try to make sure that folks are not only represented at the table, but especially if it impacts their home or their neighborhood or where they live, that they are directly uh, involved in decision-making Oftentimes we, we can't talk about the justice pieces, the solutions without getting deeper into the injustices and, and how things came to be. And a lot of time that's an overlap between uh, policy, history and science. In addition to being a year of global protests against police violence, a year of a global pandemic, and a historic election year. The year 2020 was the warmest year on record, continuing the trend of devastating climate change. But as communities of color have been the hardest hit by COVID, we're also the hardest hit by climate change. You describe climate change as a threat multiplier. What is that? What is a threat multiplier? First of all, I think a really important piece of this is like understanding that uh, environmental injustices don't often happen in, in just like one swing. Uh, sometimes it's, it's not that one, ex one community is just experiencing um, extreme heat, right? Oftentimes it's extreme heat and issues around lead and mold or economic injustice and, and all these other things. So uh, there's a synergy of, of things that are happening when we think about how communities have been deprived of resources or intentionally put next to environmental hazards, um, and that uh, that's that's intentional and 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 has been done on purpose. But when we when we think about the fallout, the impact comes on health, uh, and um, that's the the work that I do in environmental uh, the environmental health department at WEACT. But um, that's where we really see the toll. So in something like uh, thinking about COVID in areas where folks have have traditionally lived next to a highway or have uh, have had different um, health issues that have been linked to environmental injustices, we see the higher death tolls, right? Because their health has already been uh, health has already been impacted, and as our climate changes and and our our climate shifts, those tolls will become higher because folks already have those pre-existing conditions. 
the threat uh, is not just uh, a pandemic to folks who, you know, have uh, health that hasn't been impeded by uh, these injustices, right? It becomes when the, the next swing of climate change hits us, it's going to hit folks harder um, because of, of um, all of these issues that have, have impacted health. Uh, and that goes to, to infrastructure as well. When we think about, for, when we're thinking about Texas, right? When we're thinking about uh, Hurricane Katrina in, in Louisiana, infrastructure definitely plays a role. And that can be really linked to um, funds and, and ways that, that communities have really been set up to survive um, different, uh, different instances, right? Uh, we can look at different communities and see that pipes haven't been uh, reinforced or changed or upgraded. Buildings haven't been retrofitted. Uh, we can see that that energy grids haven't been uh, connected to protect the the health and well-being of of residents who live there. And the fallout that we see is loss of life or or other um, harms on on our health and quality of life. Um, and I, we can see, see that by zip code as well. There are a lot of really interesting tools like the Robert, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has a tool where you can put in your zip code and they will tell you your life expectancy based on um, a lot of different factors, access to a grocery store, whether or not you live close to a highway and, and all of these other sort of things that contribute to our environmental health. So uh, climate change is, is definitely a multiplier for for communities who have been been dealing with um, environmental injustices for for such a long time. People of color have been advocating for healthy communities since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. As communities of color have been disproportionately adjacent to and impacted by environmental pollutants like landfills, toxic waste centers, and truck depots. We Act has led campaigns to engage community members in land use projects, focusing on removing toxins and generating clean air solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about those initiatives? One of our, our favorite projects to talk about is the um, West Harlem Pierce Park. It was going to be turned into a, it's an area, it's maybe like a block or two long along the river. It was going to be turned into I believe like a, a hotel or something like that, some type of commercial area, but we were able to work with elect, elected officials to get that turned into a, a nice green space. It's on the west side, uh, you're able to, to walk along the water and you know walk pets or anything like that. We have summer movies there and in the summertime when it's, when it's not COVID, but um, we've done a lot of uh, similar sort of like land use and transportation projects Transportation was a big, uh, a big deal for us, especially when we were first starting, uh, because a lot of the uh, the bus depots were located uptown. The majority of bus depots were located uptown, and um, understanding what it means to live next to a bus depot, there are buses always idling, coming in and out. Especially if you have small kids who who don't need to be, you know, in, no kids need to be breathing in pollution. But if you have small kids who are are breathing in that all the time, right? It really has. Uh, implications for childhood asthma and, and those sorts of things. So uh, one of our bigger ones as well is the uh, Mother Coy Hill Bus Depot. Is that a bus depot that was due for renovation and we were able to work with MTA officials, our, our director of organizing, Charles Calloway, organized with residents there to uh, get it turned into one of the first uh, green bus depots in um, in the country, it's very, uh, very nice if you get a chance to, um, a chance to visit. It has a green roof. It has a really, um, a really beautiful mural on the front that community members said, "Listen, if we're gonna have to look at this bus depot every day, we want to have something on the front that at least is, is nice to look at." And um, we've been involved with uh, getting buses to switch from. Uh, from diesel fuel to hybrid fuel. We have uh, a lot of winds around uh, toxic products, specifically in toys, which has been, uh, has been really, it, it's, that's a really sort of difficult area if we think about the position of, of, um, of, of corporations, right, as an added sort of a factor in there. Um, and we, uh, we've been involved with the asthma-free homes bill when we think about um, what it means to have a healthy indoor environment.
environmental health, I'm working on a campaign with public housing residents around the mayoral election in the city in 2021 uh, and really wanting the next mayor to give uh, due diligence to public housing and really understanding that there have been a lot of really, really bad mold lead uh, and other indoor health issues as well as maintenance issues and a lot of a lot of other environmental health related um, uh, problems that have impacted the health of residents who live there. So uh, we put together an agenda with um, with residents on, on things that they would want to see the next mayor focus on. Um, but part of that work uh, is done with residents and then there are coalitions of folks who are involved in um, and wanting to see and call for changes on both the state and, and local level and public housing. Uh, so that that's made up of, of not only folks who do housing explicitly, but folks who work uh, in, in specific boroughs, work, folks who work in public and private housing, folks who work in environmental justice and, um, and you know, that's sort of the beauty of, of coalitions is that, you know, folks come from all different walks of life for this specific call to action. Uh, and the outcome is, is usually the bettering the quality of life or providing more access to resources and, and really demanding that our elected officials are, um, are keeping us safe as they are responsible for, for doing. 2020 was a hell of a year for so many reasons. Um, thinking back to early summer uh, of 2020 uh, with many of the Black Lives Matter protests going on, how did you experience um, those moments of protest last year? Um, I think it was a really heavy time for um, our staff as we all, well, most of us identify as, as of color and um, the work that we do isn't, uh, the work that we do is highly ingrained in, in racial justice work. Um, and, you know, I think for us, it's taking time to, taking the time to take care of ourselves when needed um, and, and hopping back out there to, uh, to lead the charge on the work and, and making sure that, um, that access to resources, access to uh, a healthy environment, the right to live a healthy right life, uh, the right to resiliency uh, remains mm. to be uh, an important part of, of the work that we do. Um, and I think it, it was really interesting. I, I think because the shift around COVID happened around that time, They're, they weren't ex exactly the same time, but they were a little bit in overlapping and um, I think at some point there was just a synergy between COVID, racial justice work and environmental justice work and climate justice work. So um, I think for us, just a, a call to action and, and what we were doing and to, to fight even harder on the projects that we were working on and um, to fight even harder with the, the members that we're working with and in Northern Manhattan and beyond who um, were feeling something at that time. Was there something about the way that um, New York responded to COVID um, that revealed to you either um, additional work that needs to be done or what did you take away or are taking away from the response to COVID from an environmental justice perspective? I think for us, it's all about making the connections. When the connections aren't made, um, certain things aren't, aren't turned into a priority. So thinking about um, that was a good overlap with our um, extreme heat work and, and making extreme heat a priority. Um, and it became this overlap where we had, there were folks who, who, I, who are older, right? And the solution in the city uh, is, is to come up with um, cooling centers. So there are areas in the city where when it's too hot, you can go to a cooling center and there will, there will be like air conditioning and water and, and stuff that you, you need to stay cool. Um, but really understanding that um, what happens when there are older folks in the city who are especially vulnerable to COVID and the rates are were really high, but are also living in homes that don't have, have air conditioning. Um, and the, the city had uh, a response to that. And, and part of our work is to make sure that they are making the connections between 
this is an environmental justice issue and it's overlapping with the pandemic. It's overlapping with, with racial justice and all of these other things and it, and it needs to be a priority um, to make sure that the death toll uh, doesn't increase because folks are having heat strokes and staying in their, their apartments uh, when they, they need to, you know, need to, to, to stay cool, but also need to be protected from the pandemic. So um, I think that's, that's a big part of our role in any of the city's responses. It's just, just keeping them accountable to those, um, those pieces around environmental justice and climate justice and um, really making sure that the solutions that come forward are, um, are truly equitable. That if there's a, the, one of the solutions was a system to say, uh, if you are under these qualifications, um, you're allowed to, to have a free air condition from the city, right? Um, what are ways that we can make sure that, um, that folks in, um, in Northern Manhattan where there's a higher, higher number of folks who, are, um, who identify of color um, are getting those as, as needed when we think about the disparities of, of health impacts. Um, so we, we do a lot of that work when it comes to COVID, just making sure that the solutions are equitable and working with the city as best we can to, um, to make sure that that happens. And then if it doesn't happen, going forward on accountability, and that can be uh, through hearings and, and you know, other sort of actions to make that happen. But um, when you say hold people accountable, that just sounds so serious. Like, it sounds like I don't want to be held accountable. I just want to do it right the first time. <laughs> because having we act come for me to hold me accountable it just sounds like you will be held accountable for this. I just feel like, listen, I just want to do it right the first time so we don't have to go through this accountability no, that's process because like it sounds really painful. That's the meaningful involvement piece, right? Well, it's like, well, if if there aren't people there who are uh, who are representing everybody. If the, the solutions come down and they aren't, uh, you know, they aren't truly inclusive or, or make the change that will impact, uh, impact folks the way they need to be impacted, then we have to step up the game and, and address the, uh, you know, address the issues. And, um, you know, we have a lot of really great connections with folks in, at the city, state and federal level. So um, we do the best we can to work with people and, and until they prove to be hard-headed. <laughs> I'm reading between the lines. <laughs>
preach that we should do. Um, and then, you know, we never have time to do it. But I think uh, this pandemic has given us a, a moment to really slow down uh, when we can, if we are afforded that opportunity. Um, and some of that is forced uh, slowing down and some of that um, some of that isn't, but I think really trying to take stock of the moment and take, take stock of the moment is um, really important and key. Um, and that if we are privileged enough to get rest that we should take it to, to continue on in the fight um, and that we should advocate for, um, for others to be able to have that same rest that, um, that we have. Um, and that that's been really key and important um, for me, because uh, without the rest, it, it's hard to see it in the intersections. Everything kind of gets blurred. The Environmental Protection Agency, how does the, uh, the leadership at that level affect the work that you do at your organization? The EPA has regions, so decisions that are made on that like larger federal level trickle down to the regional level, um, and that trickles down to uh, how folks are getting information from, from that federal level. And I would say that there's there's engagement on all levels, the local, federal, and the state, uh, and that sometimes the state can be held responsible for certain things that uh, local entities cannot, and the same thing for for government groups as well. But I think in the the Trump era, we've seen a lot of rollbacks on different policies at that national level, which have eventually trickled down to the state and the state and sometimes like the, the local level. Um, so that definitely has an impact on not only where we're moving as a country as a whole, but um, funding of different programs and funding of educational programs, funding of, of different programs that will impact the, the work that we do on, um, on different initiatives. And they all sort of, they all sort of interconnect. We have a DC office as well, and they do a lot of really wonderful work with uh, federal legislators um, and, and really work to actively help to set the tone on environmental justice and the initiatives that are, um, the initiatives that are going on, so. Yeah, if I could do a backflip, which I cannot, I, I think I would have once uh, uh, Biden selected uh, HBCU grad and, and uh, the new guy to head uh, the EPAs. Uh, any excitement on, on your end and, and, and seeing who the new EPA head is? From a personal level, yes. I'm not speaking right. for my organization. All right. Uh, <laughs> we, can leave, we can leave it at that. <laughs> we can leave it at that. <laughs> How will the world be different as a result of your, your work at WEACT? What will be different about the world? Um, I think we'll take more seriously environmental injustices and the toll to uh, the toll on human life, especially when we think about issues on uh, extreme heat and um, decarbonization and uh, indoor environmental health uh, and and all those sort of things. That we'll we'll take those things more seriously, um, and that there will be some legislation changes. You know, I'm working with um, with a, a coalition of, of folks and building a coalition of folks uh, working to make sure that in New York State it's mandatory to teach about uh, uh, climate change, climate justice. Uh, New Jersey is the, the only the only state that re requires you to teach about it. So, um, uh, you know, essentially we, we always hope to work ourselves out of a job, right, that uh, there won't be any more injustices to, to solve. A lot of times I get this question of like, if you're working yourself at a job, you know, why would you be like wanting to, to solve environmental injustices or, you know, contribute to those solutions? Um, but there's so much that we miss when we're only talking about solving the injustice, right? We miss like the futurism aspect of building and uh, creating and and there's like a next level beyond the uh, the oppression. And I would say a lot of times when you're doing like climate work, it's working in tandem. Like we're working to fix the injustice, but we were also working on that resiliency. We had 
some questions about being an educator because as much as your um, your passion as we saw was the environment another bit is about the um, the education piece um, gosh where do we start let's go back to do you teach differently than the way that you were taught yes first of all I think like my identity is totally informed the way that I teach um, I never had a teacher of color who was a science teacher for me. I had a, like maybe two teachers of color, three teachers of color growing in, uh, in high school um, uh, and one in middle school. So that like, I think is like a big informer of uh, not only like the way that I teach, but like what I choose to highlight. Some experiences that I had and when I was a student that I was like, I don't wanna have that experience again. Um, and then other experiences where I was like, all right, like, you know, I agree with this teacher. I maybe I didn't agree, but this is the experience that I want to give back to my, to my students. Is there um, one that comes to mind? One particular experience that comes to mind? Yes. Senior year of high school, I had a teacher who took us outside every day. And, uh, you know, she was like, well, there's no rule that says we can't go outside every day. And I teach you environmental science. So we're going to have, you know, start to have class outside. Uh, but she really pushed us to try to have more experiential learning and not just learning from a book, um, which is a lot of science classes. They were like, we will be learning this textbook. Um, but she was the first one who was really like, all right, this is, if we're, this is environmental science. This is the most hands-on thing that I can teach you. We are not going to use a textbook at all, um, which really sort of like broke the boundaries of um, you know, what I thought education was or like, you know, in my mind should be, but, um, you know, we learned the most from, uh, I mean, this kind of, I'm kind of biased because I, my dad was a biologist and by the time I was in high school, I was just like, you know, um, I could teach this class. I could teach this class, but, um, she taught it in such an, an out of the box kind of way that I was like, oh, right. Like, I want to be an out-of-the-box kind of teacher. Uh, I read that um, in an interview, you mentioned having a nurturing instinct that you identified as um, that bears have a nurturing instinct and you kind of saw that in your development. Listen, every time bears showed up, I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? <laughs> because I'm such a city person. I love going outdoors and hiking and everything like that. And somebody's going to teach me how to use a kayak and all those things. So, but when these things popped up, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Anyway, I'm curious how that nurturing instinct helps you to, um, in your education practice or in your practice of facilitating other people seeing the change that they want to see in their environment? Um, as it connects to bears. It sounds yeah. like the bears had a role in this. <laughs> they really do. Um, bears are really um, nurturing. It takes them longer to like raise their cubs. Like they are, when the cubs are born, they do not know how to do, you know, anything right and and the instinct is different in, in different animals um which is why bears a lot of time a lot of times nurturing is is attached to uh, like mama bears you're a mama bear you're very nurturing um i feel like i as like a, a way of nurturing tended to lean towards lean into uh tough love approaches but um I think that's something that I've always seeked out and, and sought out. Um, and that's something that I, that was in the decision that I, I chose to go to Spelman. I wanted to be nurtured. I want someone to not necessarily to hold my hand, but to um, really see me as a full person and to be invested in my growth. And when I came to, uh, when I came to WEACT, I actually have, I keep in touch with the uh, uh, some of the people who've had my job before and one person in particular uh, David Chang uh, he really nurtured me and invested into my growth and uh, spent the time giving me feedback and and really um, advocating for me in places that I I couldn't see 
Um, and that was, was something that I really um, liked and responded to. Um, and I think that's something that I will always be a lifelong thing for me is that um, nurturing uh, and, and um, yeah, I think for me, it's like a, a pay it forward kind of thing when it's time for me to like nurture back and to, to give that back. It's something that I'll be, I'll be more than glad to, uh, more than glad to do. What music brings you joy? What's uh, in heavy rotation? Oh <laughs> Taylor <funny>. sings. Taylor <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. don't listen to the radio. <laughs> in uh, every day, my wife and I um, have a dance every- party. Well, listen, that's like after the day is done. Every day we make them, well, like the first day of the pandemic, I was like, listen, we're going to make a board. We're going to write down what we're eating every day, what fun stuff we want to do. And we have a song of the day and we have compiled the song of the days into a playlist since the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's like 30 hours of music at this point. Wow. We have been in the pandemic for like 20 years. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, I think today I wrote on the board, uh, listening to the Foo Fighters and Queen. Um, what's up, I was doing? A lot of Eric Badu in the pandemic, specifically yeah. since uh, the verses between Jill Scott and Eric Badu. But, you know, that was like, you know, 10 years ago in the pandemic. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I really try to listen to my, uh, the mood of uh, like when I'm waking up. Um, like, what am I, like, what vibe am I sort of feeling today, but. So you said there's food on the board too? Yeah, there's meals every day. <laughs> oh, so. That's some good What's organizing for <laughs> yeah, My you... wife killed her first deer, so we have like a full freezer. We bought a chest freezer. Um, mm-hmm. We have a full freezer of deer meat. So, and quail, my brother, he's a, a he is a, um, my brother is a, um, a teacher at the Governor's School for Agricultural Education mm-hmm. in um, South Carolina. Highly recommend him for an interview. My mom is also a, like, she's been a teacher for like 30 years. We always bury the lead with her. We're like, oh, we're educators. We got everything from my dad. And she's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm here too. She's so, like, listen. Yeah, exactly. She's like, That's always you out. You and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, so we have deer, deer meat in the freezer and every night we think about what we want to call out for the next day. <laughs> now, where, where was your wife hunting? We went, we, both, we drove down to, uh, to, um, South Carolina and stayed okay, okay. for like three and a half months. Yeah. Um, so we were able to quarantine, uh, and go with my, um, go with my dad, um, to like, you know, to hunt. And it was a lot easier just to, um, all of our stuff is down there. We have a rifle. It stays with mm-hmm. my parents, you know, because of laws and too hard to logistically figure out. Yeah. But um, yeah, meat of the day. That's my logistical question, though. How did you get the venison from South Carolina to, to Brooklyn? We had, just... we had it processed and then packed up a big cooler and a, a lot of um like ice packs and all because the deer the, yeah. it's, like, it's okay. pretty it's like a pound of deer per package so it's not going to defrost in in one drive so gotcha. yeah once we uh once we got in shoved it all in the freezer and that was it so nice i like how you said you had it processed <laughs> <laughs> yeah we use a uh, like local butchers and they like you tell them like, oh, I want sausage, I want ground, I want loins, I want hands, jerky, whatever you want. Wow. And then uh, they make it that way for you. Well, it's been delightful, Taylor, talking with you. Yeah, enlightening as well. This Thank conversation you. has gone by so quickly. I know. Okay. Yeah, so we can call you back and talk about um, futurism from an environmental perspective after we've both read, or three of us have read, I'm trying to get Aaron to read more. After we've read Octavia Butler. <laughs> Audiobooks? No? Audiobooks? Audiobooks? 
Aaron, that could be a good look for you. I, in I might need to get back into audio. I did audiobooks in 2006. I had my great year of reading in 2017. I just need to get back to it. I just, I just lost the habit. I got to get back to the habit. So. We're trying. We have a book club <laughs> with the Dad Project, and we're trying to right. bring him along. <laughs> it was his yeah. idea too. Yeah. We're reading in the book club. We're, we're starting light but heavy with the Miseducation of the Negro. We're going to reread that. Okay. And uh, uh, February twenty eighth, we'll definitely send you uh, an email on IG Live. We haven't decided what time yet, for sure, but we'll let we'll let you know if you can get in on the IG Live. Yeah. 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 And then we're <laughs> going to pick up with. Um, I think we're going to read the Purpose of Power. Um, the Prophets is on the list. Um, Breathe by Imani Perry is on the list. And um, I don't know if you have any, do you have any recommendations of things that we should read? I do have recommendations. I do have, back on the music, um, the music recommendation. Someone, my wife sent me a playlist that someone found the albums that James Baldwin had in his apartment in, in uh the south of france so i've been listening Ooh. to that whole that one's also like 24 hours long but you know mm-hmm. that's been amazing wow. so um i've been reading uh, there's this book called it's like the echoing ida collective it's like a collective mm-hmm. of folks who are identified as women or uh non-binary folks who are black but they there's a bunch of like excerpts if you ever read a crunk feminist collective it's like that it's pretty similar Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading Detransition Baby, which is really good. Um, I'm rereading uh, Harry Belafonte's uh, bio that I read in college mm-hmm. called My Song. Really? Um, I read it in college, and you know, when you read stuff in college, you don't really, you're not really it. Yeah. <laughs> right, and you're like, whatever. But I found it on my, my trip home, and I was like, oh, like, this is a good. Um, a good get for um for me to have so that's a fun um a fun addition to the bookshelf i tried uh breaking into tony morrison's the source of self-regard mm. i'm like really always wanting to read tony morrison but uh sometimes it's hard there's that quote from oprah to tony morrison where oprah called tony morrison according to this quote and she's like you know i just read your book but then i had to go back and read those three pages again. And apparently Toni Morrison said to Oprah, she's like, that's called reading. <laughs> it's not that you don't understand. It's that okay. that's how reading like that. works. Like that. <laughs> you do have to like sit and think about it and then maybe you have to read it again, but that is right. reading. Right. So I feel like if that's what Toni Morrison said, then the angels have spoken. Yeah. <laughs> the spirit, the oracle it's on how. by now. <laughs> yeah. I think I needed to hear that too, Rhonda. I think that speaks to you saying. Did take, I bless you today? Take more than one day to read. Miseducation <laughs> 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 on the Negro. Listen. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we have definitely digressed. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. We really appreciate it. And um, we will be back in touch about the future, talking about the future. So right, tell well, all your friends. Exciting. That's right. Okay. Get ready. <laughs> My mom's going to be like, you went that whole interview about education and didn't say a thing about me. And I'll be like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's in the beginning. <laughs> that, that, that may be the excerpt right there. We'll put that excerpt at the front. That's the excerpt. going to be like, look, uh-huh. Mom. Like, I'm not even listening to this. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's too late. <laughs> No, this episode uh, is dedicated to, to Taylor's mom. <laughs> what's your What's your mom's name? Mickey. You said what? Mickey, like Mickey Mouse. Oh, okay, okay. that's her. Wait, that's her first name. Yeah. What's her last name? I'm trying to what? set me up. What's, Mickey Morton. what's her? Mor- Morton. Morton. Yep. Okay. This episode is dedicated to Miss Mickey Morton. <laughs> no. There we have. This, it. We're gonna put that. This in one's the for you, Miss Morton. <laughs> that's oh, right. <laughs> all that you've done and that's why taylor is the educator that they are because of you (laughs) and now we can begin (laughs) (laughs) then we'll play mama by boys to man exactly (laughs) just to make sure that she feels taken care of and and recognized okay 
this time we've right. already done. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. We'll talk about it. Thanks very much. Bye. Take care. That's our episode for this week. We had a great time talking with Taylor and look forward to a follow-up conversation about what a future of environmental justice for Black and Brown people looks like. Check out We Act for environmental justice at weact.org. Also, if you're looking for a tribe to be Black and in nature, check out outdoorafro.com and look for that picture of Aaron's daughter. They have groups and events around the country. So wherever you are, chances are there is an outdoor Afro meetup group near you. You may have heard that this year, the DAP Project launched a book club, TDP Be Reading, to understand more about the founder of Negro History Week. And because we're educators, we're reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. That's right. And I am excited to now be three chapters in (laughs) to the book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> two chapters more than last week um but this is a god is good he's faithful truly, he is <laughs> or she it truly is a seminal text um to read it um all these years later from when i originally read it and all these years later after it was originally written and see the relevance uh, i can't wait to talk to you and the tdp family about the miseducation of the negro Buy it at your local independent bookstores, preferably Black-owned, and join us on Instagram Live on Sunday, February 28th, for our first DAP Project Book Talk. On the socials, I tweet randomnalia at educate underscore Rhonda. I post pictures of my auntie life and my plant life on Insta at Rhonda Henderson. And I do like to talk about books, books, and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on IG. Aaron, where can people find you on the interwebs? Mostly on IG as well, at Aaron.Stallworth. Find out more about me, my family, my selfies, whatever else may be going on in life. And of course, I also like to post pics for our DAP project on IG, at the.dap.project. Amorphous, get at us. Yes, it always gives me a little bop, 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 bop. Okay, um, but thank you for rocking with us this week. Resistance is a highway with many lanes, and I hope you find yours. Take care.